When did you get here? Last night. Yeah. From? I, from Newark. Okay. Yeah. But it was fine. I don't take the night flights. You don't sleep on the flight? You don't sleep well, and if you're going to get up and work, I've found. Yeah. I mean, I did when I was a foreign correspondent. I'd get on anything I could, but... I mean, one of the things I want to talk about, and it's something you know more intimately than I do, but it's one of the things that is, aside from the fact that I'm a journalist who's published classified information, I mean, we have just to that, but one of the things that's disturbed me from the start is how the, all of the international bodies and the legal entities that have gone after Julian have broken their own rules. Yes. That, and it's so blatant. And that's what I find kind of incomprehensible because it's public. It's not a secret. And I mean, there's many secret stuff they've done too, of course. But, you know, revoking political asylum, allowing British police to go in on sovereign territory, charging him under the Espionage Act when he's not an American citizen, recording his meeting with, with his attorneys. I mean, any one of these things in a normal legal procedure would have seen the case dismissed, and yet they keep doing it and doing it. The, you know, I sat in in London. I think I can't remember. It was with Baritzer when I was here, and then watched, covered it online. But it, it's in those details that the judicial farce is exposed, and it and and it's not just one egregious violation. It's repeated violations, and aside, of course, from what they're doing to him personally. That, and the, the, the failure on the part of the public, and in particular the press, to react with a kind of outrage, because if they eviscerate the rule of law, it's not just going to be for Julian. You know, they set those kinds of precedents, and, they, and if they're allowed to get away with it, with anyone, it's dangerous. That's what, you know, that's what, for me, and is just so frustrating. But don't you think they're deliberately dismantling yes. the system? Oh, they yes. They want to of show course. that they're dismantling Yes, it. they are. But they're dismantling right in front of us, and we're just watching. And I mean, I'm talking about the broader public and yeah. not reacting. Yes, of course, that is the goal. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're in, in a way, that, that passivity makes us complicit in what is ultimately our own enslavement. I mean, this is all, of course, even beyond Julian as a person and as a, as a journalist. Yeah. And that's what, you know, having followed this case for several years, and as you know, I was very close friends with Michael Ratner, mm -hmm. which is how I met Julian, because I would come to London with Michael. I can't, I, I, I'm just kind of mystified at how people can't see where this is going to lead. I think they're maybe afraid. I mean, I, I, I can't explain it otherwise, or maybe uh, they don't really want to believe that it's happening. Uh, but I, I, think, I think it's because they have demons. So after 9-11, because I speak Arabic and spent seven years in the Middle East, we demonized Muslims in the United States. I don't know how it was here, but you know, it was real, really awful. And, and, and there were all sorts of cases, like this case of Faid Saad Hashmi. I don't know if you know that case. So he, this, 
he was a, so what, what happened after 9-11 is, and of course they were serving the interests of Israel, is they went after Muslim groups and individuals in the United States who were outspoken about Palestine. Mm. So the Holy Land Foundation, my good friend Samuel Arian, wonderful man. But these were articulate, effective. And, um, and, and they charged them under terrorism laws. And again, with Sammy, it, 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 it was like Julian. It was a completely fabricated case. And of course, where did they, it was Cromberg. It was, yeah. yes. So in the Eastern District of Virginia. So I watched them do it. And with, with Hashmi, he had been a, a really charismatic Palestinian activist. I don't think he's Palestinian. I think he's Pakistani. But... He was at Brooklyn College, and then he, I think he was at the London School of Economics or University of London or something, and they were just determined to get him. And his roommate had sent, you can't make this stuff up, waterproof socks, I didn't even know they existed, or something, to Pakistan to give to Al-Qaeda. I mean, we're not talking about AK-47 right. or anything. And had used his phone to, like, and so they nailed him on that. And they right. brought him back, and they held him in the MCC in New York for, tw I think it was 23 months in isolation. Wow. And by the time he got under SAMS, under Special Administrative Measures, so no communication, I mean, either we, you know, they had secret evidence that they used against him that even his lawyers weren't allowed to see. By the time he got into court, he was a zombie. Right. And so I watched that happen. And, I, and of course, I said, and you know, that they are doing exactly what they're doing. They're setting legal precedents by which, or precedents by which they can strip us of any legal protection. And, and again, it was actually not just watched passively by the American public, but cheered on because mm -hmm. they had demonized the Muslims. And I think they've done a pretty effective job of demonizing Julian. And so, and that's how they always do it, because they will demonize a particular group, then strip all legal protections from that group. Yeah. And now, of course, you see, I don't know if you've been following Cop City in Atlanta, where the police have, are building this we can only, a kind of paramilitary compound with like shooting ranges and all sorts of stuff, helicopter landing pads. I mean, this is urban domestic warfare. And so there have been heavy protests in Atlanta, but they're charging all these people with the terrorism laws. Animal mm -hmm. rights activists are getting charged now with the terrorism laws. Right. Eco-activists are, so yeah, so that's the playbook that they, 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 they mount, as they did with Julian, a very vicious black propaganda campaign, and, and then they're allowed to create these mechanisms by which nobody has any rights at all. And, and, and by the time people wake up, it's too late. I mean, you know, it's that famous Niemöller quote, first they came for the Jews, but I wasn't a Jew. I mean, but it is, you know, it's like that thing. Well, they also create the mechanisms, as you said, like, and the, and the energy that goes into creating, I don't know, a, a whole machinery behind going after um, the perceived threat. Yes, well, that's right. It's fear. Yes, that's right. And then, and then right. once that one threat is overcome, then that has to go somewhere. And yeah. so it gets redirected to some yeah, that's right. other issue. But although I think reading the CIA, which is a state within a state, you mm. know, it's not even accountable within the Congress. And there was a few years ago, Feinstein, after the torture was exposed, tried to do a congressional report. And there was this really revealing moment. I'm no fan of Feinstein, but she was at that moment trying to do the right thing. 
and she came out and she was just ashen. Um, and, and I can't remember the exact words, but it's something like, you know, we can't take on these people. Because they had, they had bugged all the computers in the congressional office, They'd, they destroyed information. And, and I think it was that moment where she personally realized that we, we can't control. There's no regulation, there's no oversight, there's no control. And uh, unlike the church and the Pike committees that in the middle 70s had exposed mm. the crimes, that was it. That, that moment is gone. And I think that Vault 7, because of this kind of imperial attitude on mm. the part of the CIA where they can do anything, because the CIA, we have 17 intelligence communities in the United States. I mean, the CIA as an intelligence organization is kind of redundant. Right. Um, and what it has done is transformed itself into a paramilitary, or especially after 9-11. So it's, and it's completely in the dark. I mean, it has its own drones and special forces units, and having had friends who served in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, these people create more problems than they solve because they'll go in on extraction and night raids and anger an entire village, and then the next day, the rangers will go through the village and they open right. fire on so, I mean, they're counterproductive. And I think that what happened with Vault 7 is that you now have an incredibly powerful organization that is, in essence, a paramilitary organization with you know, huge resources. And, and that exposure of Vault 7, they're not used to being monitored, exposed in any way. Mm -hmm. I think the anger I think it was more visceral. I think the anger within the CIA was ran really deep. Mm -hmm. And you know, again, I haven't talked spoken to anyone in the CIA, but my guess is that at that point they laid down the law. We're getting Julian. Mm -hmm. um, that's my my guess. Mm -hmm. I think it's all being because Biden, no matter who's in the office, Obama, you can't at this point. You know, they talk about the dark state. I mean, these are the, you know, the figures like Biden are the puppets. Yeah. In the military, you know, the U.S. military has not been audited for a decade. I read somewhere we spend more on military bans than we do on the State Department. I mean, again, it's, a, it's, it's like ancient Rome. I mean, it's, it's its own entity, almost severed from the government. Right. Um, but that's how I read what happened after Vault 7. Hmm. When did you first meet Julian? So I was very close friends with Michael Radner, who we lost, hmm. and sadly. We were really good friends for many years. And he, of course, after 2010 and the Iraqi war logs, went, came to London and asked for a meeting with Julian. And according to Michael, uh, you know, he, they said, we think they're going to come for you. And Julian said, why? Mm. Mm. Um, and he, he said, because that's how they work. And we think they're going to charge you under the Espionage Act. Right, because until that point, there had been no... Well, it was only on... Uh, this was 2010, right? Yeah, and Obama, 2010. Obama came in, what, early 2009 he started? Yeah, 2009. And it was under the Obama administration that... Um, the Espionage Act started being used. He used it flagrantly against whistleblowers. And we have to draw a distinction because Julian is the first journalist. 
charged under the Espionage Act. So you had Daniel Ellsberg and these kinds of figures. But the, going back to 1917, the Espionage Act was primarily an instrument to destroy the left. Mm. So it was, uh, they shut down the socialist publications under the Espionage Act, the masses, and I think Appeal to Reason. They put Debs in prison, the socialist candidate. I think he was actually in prison under the Sedition Act, which was kind of a twin act. They did the deportations of Emma Goldman. And, uh, and it, it's always been an instrument that's been used to destroy the left. Um, but it was, as I have this, I believe this is right, that between 1917 and the Obama administration, it was only used three times against whistleblowers, once against Ellsberg, and that case collapsed because they invaded his psychiatrist's office and all those kind of dirty tricks. I think Ob another case was, was afterwards pardoned. It was really, yeah, it it was was not, really it not used it wasn't. Obama. And Obama, I mean, Obama's assault on civil liberties was worse than Bush. And he went after anyone who leaked, Kiriakou and all sorts of others. And that, of course, is the lifeblood of journalism. Mm. So we need people on the inside with a conscience who are willing to share information about malfeasance, crimes, lies that the government is committing. That's how we do our work. And because of wholesale surveillance, um, and that's why Snowden fled, mm. they, they know immediately who's connecting with journalists. Right. And I've been visiting, and oh, I just I visited and I write letters to Daniel Hale. This is just a really sad story. This young Air Force officer with incredible integrity and courage and saw that in the drone attacks, it was it, up to 90% of the victims were civilians, including children. Yeah. And, and then he was sitting in these rooms where the drone operators had this jocular contempt, you know, killing, they knew they were killing children and they were calling them pint-sized terrorists. And I mean, it was just yeah. sickening. And, and he exposed that and he's now sitting in Marion, Illinois in a high security, used to be the highest security prison in the country, now we have ADX Florence, Colorado, but they have him in one of these management control units which replicates. I mean, he has no, and it's in the middle of nowhere. So if I visit, I have to fly <coughs> to St. Louis and drive three hours down to Illinois in the, literally these cornfields. I mean, because of course they don't want you to, mm. to visit. Um, so in order for us to do our work, we need people like Daniel Hale. And it was really Obama who shut down any of that connection. Uh, and I can't remember, it was either nine or 11 times he used it. And so I still have friends at the New York Times who do investigative journalism, but they have told me repeatedly that there is no investigative journalism now within the government, with the inner workings of government, because everyone's too frightened to talk, because they, they can immediately be traced. So the last readout of any kind of exposure of the, the uh, the crimes, the criminal activity of power comes through people who are like Chelsea Manning or Snowden who have access to documents uh, and will leak them. Or hackers like Jeremy Hammond who, when I, and I sued Obama in 2012 over Section 1021 of the National Defense Authorization Act, which he signed at midnight at, on the last day of 2011, hoping no one would notice which overturned the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which prohibits the government from using the military as a domestic police force. Mm. And in Section 1021, 
it actually said that people are allowed to be held without habeas corpus, without due process, until, quote unquote, the end of hostilities, which is just in a more, I mean, it's really a terrifying kind of almost Orwellian. Yeah. And I sued him in federal court. Nobody thought we would win, including Michael Ratner. And, and we just got this judge with it, and we won. And then, of course, it was Obama. He freaked out. They freaked out. They had the NSA lawyers in her chambers an hour after the ruling <clears throat> demanding. She issued a temporary injunction, which meant that if American citizens were being held in Guantanamo-like conditions anywhere in the black sites around the world, this was against the law. Mm. And, you know, I and the lawyers were kind of curious, or we wondered why were they so, why did they respond with such alacrity? Well, because they were holding. Yeah. Probably right. Afghan, you know, dual national, Iraqi, whatever. Um, and uh, she, to her credit, and she's no longer on the, on the Southern District, she went back to private practice, she refused. So then they went to the appellate court. So in the American system, you have the federal court, then you have the appellate court, which is a panel of judges who review it, and then your last chance is the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. So they went to the appellate court. That was a Friday. They went to the appellate court on Monday morning, and they lifted the injunction in the name of national security. Right. The problem with, and this is, gets back to Julian, is the law was so black and white that this was such a clear violation. They didn't know how to rule. And so they didn't rule. They just waited and waited and waited months. And I had been one of the plaintiffs in Clapper versus Amnesty International, which did get to the Supreme Court, where journalists had challenged the government about surveillance because we can't work, obviously. We can't, if we're being surveilled as well as people who are trying to reach out to us. And there was an incredible line, because this was before Snowden, where the government lawyers assured the court that if any journalist was being surveilled, we would tell them. Yeah, I mean, it was patently absurd, but the court bought it. And then, rather than hear the merit of the case, <clears throat> the appellate court said I didn't have standing. That's the way they always get rid of you. Right. Y'all don't have a right to bring the case. They said Hedges doesn't, did not have standing to bring in Clapper versus Amnesty International. Therefore, he doesn't have standing in Hedges versus Obama. And they threw it out. We filed a cert to go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court didn't take it. So it's law. It's law. But... You know, having been involved in this kind of detail and having done the kind of work, albeit on a much smaller level as, than as Julian did, uh, and having watched all of this process, uh, it has really been the death of investigative journalism. Now, now they will leak you. They, you know, the other things about leaks, as you know, is that governments will leak all sorts of highly classified material that makes them look good. So yes. it's not that you don't get leaks right. of highly classified but it's selective leaks that, uh, that they want out. And, uh, and so now it's over. I mean, the, the, and that's really frightening. It means there's no power is in no way accountable. There's no transparency. And, and we know history has taught us that when that kind of secrecy is imposed on autocratic power, it just, it, it abuse grows upon abuse, grows upon abuse. And, and that is why they're just, determined to crucify Julian. That's the, the crisis that we're in. We've lost the ability to know what power is doing. I have, I have this feeling that in order to establish the baseline, you would have to give a history lesson. Yeah. Because, for example, 
the use of the Espionage Act, you have to understand that it yeah. wasn't used for almost 100 yeah. years. Against, against whistleblowers against, and journalists. Against yeah. whistleblowers and journalists. And there was a shift with Obama yeah. that opened the doors to maybe one day the Espionage Act being used against publishers in the same way that it was now being used against whistleblowers. And the way it was using, being used against whistleblowers as was as if they were spies to begin with. So there was a progressive yes, yes, that's right. shift. And that's, that's why Julian was surprised when Michael Rotner yeah. told him yeah. that, that um, he thought that the US would, would try to try him under the Espionage Act after he had published, because it was unprecedented, because you know the, the First Amendment is clear. Yeah. And the First Amendment is really a, a revolutionary instrument, and it is the gold standard in the world. And I think perhaps culturally, we are used to there being this gold standard, and through American um, cultural projection, which is what I, I grew up with. I was born in the 80s. You know, very clearly, uh, the idea of, um, I don't know, liberal, democratic, Western freedom is um, attached to this idea of, of freedom of expression um, and uh, a press that is uh, courageous and brave and, and powerful in the sense that it is, it is able to expose power and so on. And then with what's been done to Julian, because it's been so protracted, we're in a completely different yeah. uh, um, information and um, security environment, as in the, the powers of the security state are far greater and have eroded all these other rights that came, you know, I think they you have on the one hand the, the, the US Constitution, um, and then you have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and these things that were strong, um, a strong underpinning to Western democracies for a long time. And that's kind of how uh, WikiLeaks was um, born out of this kind of environment. But then since the surveillance state has become so powerful and, um, you know, there's been a an ability to control communication in such an aggressive and um, invisible manner in the 12 or thir the 13 years since WikiLeaks published this, we're in a completely different environment. Yeah. So people who knew the before, um, on the one hand, we have like an information gap with people who don't follow things so quick, clear, uh, so in such detail, but also a knowledge like a historical knowledge gap. So although we can see this progression, this rapid pro progression into like a totalitarian, not just authoritarian, but like really aggressively accelerating, I think, into a totalitarian um, environment um, for, for many people who are, you know, just a bit younger than me, they don't see it. Yeah because they don't have that reference. Well, and also because it's hidden. I mean, so, yeah. you know, you're never going to get it trying to do four minutes on CNN, which is all someone like me would get when I used to get on CNN. Yeah. I, well, when I work for the New York Times, they don't, 
you know, I used to say the real motto of the New York Times is do not significantly alienate those on whom we depend for money and access. So as a reporter for the Times, if you, got, if you wrote stories that harmed your access to the powerful, you were harmed professionally. Yeah. So would that happen like before the article was published or, or No, you, after? you would write articles that would... You could alienate the powerful occasionally, mm -hmm. but if you made a habit of it, the powerful would... I mean, I can give an example. Like, so after I covered the war in Yugoslavia, and then I covered the Dayton Peace Agreement. And so I was on the ground. And I fully understood that the Dayton Peace Agreement had just frozen the conflict. It wasn't, it was just, it was kind of, uh, you know, it was the absence of war. It wasn't a peace agreement. Because all of the killers and the warlords were still in control, terrorizing their own people in towns throughout Bosnia. And I started to write that. And Clinton was running, part of his re-election campaign was on how he brought peace to Bosnia. So Sandy Berger, who was the head of the uh, National Security Council, he, they went after me big time. And the way they do it is they have lunch with the publisher and they start bad-mouthing you. And, uh, and then the editors get, they, they see the editors and they get uncomfortable. So uh, you become a kind of management problem mm. if you... I think the only thing that saved me and allowed me to spend as long as I did with the Times is that I would put myself in really extreme situations like Sarajevo right. that nobody else wanted to. When I volunteered for Sarajevo, the executive editor said, well, I guess the line starts and ends with you. Because by the time I got there, 45 journalists had been killed. Um, and then I didn't have to interview officials because I was on the street. I mean, like when I covered the first Gulf War, I didn't go to press conferences with Schwarzkopf. I hardly interviewed anybody over the rank of a sergeant. You know, I hung out with Lance Corporal, so I was with the Marine Corps. And so that kind of saved me. Um, but yeah, if you... And the, and the other thing about it is that the closer phys geographically you get to the centers of power, so I was overseas, but if you're in Washington or New York, then the less tolerant they are right. about your confronting power. So that a journalist overseas that is trying to write a narrative which is almost always in conflict with the official narrative is not only at war with whatever administration is running the country but their Washington bureau that makes their that their journalism is contingent on them you know doing lunch so you're battling this goes has always been true you take the great reporters on Vietnam it was they were battling the Washington bureau their own bureau as much as they were battling uh, you know the people running the war so uh, yeah, that's, that's so, so a, an elite publication like the Times is very obsequious to power and will cater to power. And, you know, I, I don't know if I've told you, but I heard after the publication of the War Logs, why did these papers like The Guardian, which has been awful, or The Times, why did they turn on Julian? I told you this story. I said, no, you don't understand. They hated Julian from the moment he released mm. that. Because, the, and the only reason they ran it is because if they didn't, they would have been exposed. He shamed them into doing their job. And they loathed him for that. But that doesn't matter anymore, right? 
it doesn't matter anymore? Well, I think they, they don't mind being shamed. I think there's you mean been, they don't have any shame? <laughs> they don't have any, well, yeah, they don't have any shame because, for example, take the Twitter files. Um, it's perfectly... Yeah, but the Twitter files were, the Twitter files were more nuanced and, and opaque, perhaps. I think even to this day, it would be pretty hard to ignore what Julian released. It was so okay. cataclysmic, so huge, so important. And, and people forget, not just in terms of exposing U.S. lies and crimes, but around the world. I mean, Haiti was convulsed by those revelations, which there was traffic that, that showed how the U.S. Embassy was working with the Haitian government because the, there are all these sweatshops and to, keep, to suppress the minimum wage. I mean, you know, stuff like that. You know, part of the quid pro quo and let's talk about the, the CIA. The quid pro quo is that you will, you will do the dirty work to destroy journalists who expose, so like Gary Webb, I don't know if you know about yes. Gary Webb. So Gary Webb, I think he was with the San Francisco Chronicle, one of those papers in California, and he exposed the, the, that whole, and I was in Central America at the time, that whole CIA relationship where they were supporting the Contras under the table, and and selling cocaine and actually shipping cocaine to the states and flooding neighborhoods in Oakland and stuff with it. Well, Gary Webb was destroyed by the press because what happened was the CIA held briefings, and I know the reporter from the New York Times who went to the briefing, and uh, discredited the reporting. And the, the Times never went, and a good reporter would go out and re-report it. You would go out, check the sources, go and try and find out follow the trail that right. Webb followed. To, that's a good reporter. Right. And that didn't happen. So the Washington Post, the LA, they all piled on Webb. And they didn't actually report. They went down there, they went down to Langley, they got a background briefing, and they, hmm. and he, of course he killed himself. Hmm. So it's, it's a very, I mean, papers like the Times are, you know, their, uh, their relationship to power is, um, I mean, they consider themselves part of the elite mm. power system, and they don't want to lose that perch. At the same time, they're trying to position themselves as adversarial journalists. Right. And it does, it has, and it probably less power now with the diffusion of media, but when I was overseas, you know, I used to work overseas when I didn't work for the New York Times, so I'd have to call 30 times for somebody to call me back. You call once on the Times, they call you back. Right. And... The, pro the funny part about it, having I began as a freelancer and then eventually worked for the paper in Dallas, is that these Times reporters would come down and have all this access, and they thought it was them. It wasn't them. It was the institution. They weren't particularly good reporters necessarily. Right. Um, so, you know, I had, was good friends with Sidney Shanberg. I don't know if you ever saw The Killing Fields. That was the movie about Sidney and mm. Death Prawn, I also know. But I remember Sidney saying to me once, and Sidney was pushed out of the Times because after, although he'd won the Pulitzer and came back, he saw how the developers were driving the working class and middle class out of Manhattan and destroying rent control. And, and he started writing about it and all the rich friends of the publisher got angry. Right. And the, and the, and the executive editor started calling him, Sidney, my little commie. And... And eventually was pushed out of the paper and worked for the Village Voice. But 
I thought Sydney gave me the best description of how the Times, or papers like the Times, he said, well, we may not make things better, but if we do the, our job to the best of our ability, we stop things from getting worse. And I think that's a good definition of the commercial press. And this gets back to Julian, because all of the great advances in journalism have come from the non-commercial press that has, going back to that, shamed, the way Julian did, shamed the traditional press into doing their job. So I write for Shear Post. This is Bob Shear's website, which he pretty much funds from a Social Security check. But, you know, he's one of the legendary journalists. He was the editor of Ramparts magazine, which was the leftist magazine in the 60s. And he broke COINTELPRO. He that iconic picture of the little girl in Vietnam running naked down the road, that was first in Ramparts. And, in, and if you look at the inception of the war in Vietnam, the coverage was all cheerleading. And it was publications like Ramparts, in the same way that we saw with Julian, that forced these people against their will. But Bob Bob was, a, at the time, the Iraq War a columnist at the LA Times. They fired him because of his opposition, and I also got pushed out of the Times for my opposition to the war. Um, uh, and so that's, you know, Julian has done what, you know, great journalists. I remember once working for the Times, some intern, you know, probably went to Harvard or something, said, well, who do you think the best reporters in the country are? I said, well, I could tell you, but you would have never heard of them. He said, they don't work for us. Said, no, they don't work for you. <laughs> they don't work for us. And so, I mean, this is, of course, why I admire Julian so much. I mean, that, that's what great journalism is. And I worked on the inside of the beast. I mean, right. and, I, and with, all, with the limitations of that, and I was, you know, finally willing to become a management problem and get pushed out. Um, but, you know, I know how the system works. And that without figures like Julian, the you know the system is morally bankrupt well it's very interesting what you just explained because i think i kind of imagined it being a bit like this um when the story broke about mike pompeo making um plans asking for the cia to kind of outline how they would kidnap rendition or even kill julian uh, in the embassy and the story broke in 2021 so this was after after the initial extradition case and so on and it was three national security reporters at um, Yahoo News investigations unit and it was really detailed and you know you look at these reporters and they they have a track record of um, uh, you know, with, with sources inside the CIA and so on. And Pompeo's reaction to it was to effectively confirm it because he then went out and said that the sources, and there were over 30 of them, uh, should be prosecuted under the Espionage Act. And of course, you only get prosecuted under the Espionage Act if the information is authentic. Right. So, huge story, and you couldn't imagine a more interesting newsworthy story than this one right because uh, a journalist inside an embassy with political asylum uh, CIA head planning 
asking his his staff to to come up with sketches and options. Um, it was quite detailed. I mean, weren't they going to land on the detailed. roof or something? Or yeah, yeah, there was there was huge detail, and um, then it didn't get re-reported. It wasn't well. It did by the Guardian actually. Eventually, got re-reported by the Guardian, but the New York Times didn't touch it. The Washington Post didn't touch it, and. I was actually in, I brought it up on the BBC on a radio interview that was live and the interviewer said, oh, um, but the CIA has denied it. And I, I said, no, they haven't. They haven't denied it. They, they haven't commented and Pompeo effectively, he just, he just confirmed it. Um, and then it was just like they were given this, this talking point that they had nothing to base it on because I then, after the interview, I went back and I, I you know, verified that the CIA had not denied it. The one time the New York Times did report this um, Pompeo murder plot was after the defense filed the story in the evidence in the extradition case. Mm. So that gave them an excuse to be able to report it. But before that, uh, it was incredible. I mean, there was no, there was no mention of it, but they needed this court document in order to reference it. So this showed to me that they, that it, it was that they needed this excuse. Um, That's exactly Because it right. was clearly newsworthy. Yeah. That's right. Well, they didn't really want to go have to report it because they didn't want to run and they want to shutter their sources with the CIA. I mean, they're, it's a very delicate dance that you play and 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 there are you know reporters within institutions like the New York Times all they do are, are fed you know the, especially right. the Washington Bureau they're just fed crap yeah. I mean they don't actually report anything and they're held in very high regard by the institution right so I, when I covered after 9-11 I covered Al-Qaeda I was based in Paris and French intelligence did not want the Americans to invade Iraq so they had given me at the highest levels I had complete carte blanche at the counterterrorism office run by this crazy Corsican. And, but I could go in and just ask. I mean, I, would, I covered Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, I, and the Brits weren't giving me anything. They were awful. And I would just go, and they'd, he'd go, okay, get the files. And you know, I'm looking at pictures of Richard Reed walking out of the Brexit mosque and you know, all this kind of stuff. And, <clears throat> and, uh, and the French knew that Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda. And the French, unlike the Americans, actually had human assets inside of Al-Qaeda. The Americans didn't have any. It was all electronic eavesdropping, a lot of which they couldn't read, by the way. Yeah, it was interesting. So they knew chatter. They could pick up chatter, but they couldn't. They, as it was explained to me, they used to code it in pictures. I don't understand any of this stuff. We'll have to call Julian and ask him. But they would code the messages in pictures. But, so they, they knew something was happening, but they couldn't read it, the Americans. And I would go back to New York. Now remember, they were the New York Times at the time was, uh, you know, a full partner in the lie that Saddam Hussein was had weapons of man and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and so I had really good actionable intelligence, and I was just dismissed. Oh, that's the French. That's what you know. No, literally, Louis Scooter Libby, who I actually, you know, I went to prep school with him. That that. He told us, Dick Cheney told us, and they didn't, it was like their ears were full of wax. Right. They were, so they went after Judy Miller, who was loathsome, but the, it was an institutional failing. They didn't want to hear it. Mm 
and 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 at a time of kind of national crisis, whether that's real or manufactured, the press always falls into line. Traditionally, it goes all the way back to the Crimean War. It's every press has done it, and that's the role the Times was playing. So even though I had better intelligence. Right. Uh, it was dismissed in the name of racism because we were, you know, we, we didn't eat French fries in America at the time. We ate freedom fries and stuff yes. like this. I mean, it was so childish and I just wanted to go back to Paris. And <laughs> well, you know, part of the problem is that the U.S., I'd say the, the Anglo-American press, but mainly the U.S. press, drives a narrative for European press, at least. Mm. And so I was speaking to some European press and I was telling them, this, inc this story about Pompeo, um, you know, having his whole CIA deployed to bring down Julian and WikiLeaks and even plan to rendition, uh, an extraordinary rendition from the U UK. There, were t there was mention of black sites and how the indictment had come after these plans because they then confronted with this problem that well what if we kidnap him and then there's no indictment so that came you know that was the sequence and this is the uh the proof that this is a political if you, know, right. if you needed more evidence but that this is a politically motivated prosecution and the answer was well but the thing is the New York Times hasn't reported it, you know, the Washington Post and, and so on. And so their view from, from very mainstream uh, newspapers was that, well, it may be true, but because the New York Times hasn't reported it, then we're not going to report it either. It's worse than that. It's because the New York Times hasn't reported it, it didn't happen. Right. So when I worked for smaller papers, let's say I go back to the war in Salvador, when I was working for the Dallas Morning News, I would report stuff, I mean, pretty horrible stuff. And it made no impact because the Times, the Times had a horrible correspondent who never went out. She, we, she was, went to the embassy and got what she was fed and published it, which is not only criminal in and of itself, mm. but it hurts real journalists because yeah. my, even my editors would say, well, that's not what the Times is reporting. Mm. Um, and... I don't know that the Times still has that kind of power. I know that when I worked for the Times, our power was, as you said, that we set the agenda. So for instance, I would write a story and then all of the big networks, CBS, ABC, NBC, the producers, who are the ones with the brains, would come find me and say, well, what are you publishing tomorrow? Where did you go? Because their editors would read it in the morning paper and then tell them to go do it. That's mm. how it worked. So the circulation of the Times when I was there I don't know, 800,000, a million. Although you also have the wire service, which gets picked up. So papers around the country would be running my stories. But the real power was that it set the agenda. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so you're right. And if it wasn't in the Times, in a way, it, it could be ignored. Or, you know, as I said, it didn't happen. And I, was, I felt that on the other end. It was very frustrating. And, so, you know, there were even moments when we leaked, we gave stuff to New York Times, right. inept New York Times reporters because we were sick of not having any kind of an impact. You know, you kind mm. of would have to hold their hand. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so, so who sets the agenda now? <clears throat> the press has changed 
since, <clears throat> I mean, during my career, because <clears throat> at the time, the New York Times, like the big networks, would try and reach a wide audience. Now they don't make an effort. The press has become completely siloed. So they cater to a particular demographic, whether that's Fox News, and you can see it in terms of the percentages of Republicans who watch Fox News, 94%, the percentage of Democrats, I mean, the figures may be slightly off, uh, who watch MSNBC are like, you know, 90-something percent. I think it's 87% of Democrats read the New York Times. Because the model of the press has changed, mm. where you're feeding your readers or your viewers what they want, there's no price anymore for stuff that turns out to be a lie. And in that way, the, the, as bad as the old model was, this new model's worse. Mm. Um, because accompanied with this feeding of your demographic, what they want, you're demonizing the competing demographic. Mm. So the right media is demonizing liberals, liberals are demonizing the deplorables, and that gets to what I saw in Yugoslavia. So you had the same thing in Yugoslavia when it, when it broke up. You had ethnic entities, Serbs, Muslims, Croats, and they seized their own media outlets. Mm. The first people they persecute is not the opposing demographic, who in some ways they need in order to build their, but people within their own demographic who are actually still time to report the truth. Mm. Those are the most dangerous, and they will destroy them first. Right. And that's what's happening. What's happening in the United States is, and I don't know about the UK, but it's, it's similar to that breakdown of Yugoslavia because neither side is rooted in anymore in verifiable fact. I mean, at least in the old days, the Times was rooted in selected verifiable fact, and I will concede that the lie of omission is still a lie. Now it's not even rooted in verifiable fact. Right. And I, I was walking through Montgomery, Alabama with Brian Stevenson, the great civil rights attorney, half of Montgomery's black, and <clears throat> Brian's showing me all the Confederate memorials that have been put up, and then he says, most of these were put up in the last 10 years. And I said, that's exactly what happened in Yugoslavia. With the economic mm. collapse and breakdown of Yugoslavia and that sense of disempowerment, dethronement, and people retreated into these mythic identities, in particular kind of the white supremacy, white nationalism that's gripped the states. Um, and that's what happened in Yugoslavia. Uh, but these are identities rooted in myth. They're not rooted in truth. Right. And I think we're very far down that road. And the consequences of it are potentially, especially since the United States is awash in weapon, automatic weapons, is really frightening. Whether that we already have, you know, so many mass shootings, it's not news. And it's mass shootings of like kids in schools. And I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, you know, the, the kind of nihilistic violence. And then, you know, as the great sociologist Durkheim writes in his book on suicide, people who seek the annihilation of others are driven by desires for self-annihilation. So these killers go in and it's either suicide by cop or they shoot themselves. Right. And that exposes a very dark pathology within the United States. Um, which the, the press is now contributing to. Mm. Yes, I mean, if they took mass shootings, preventing mass shootings seriously, and not just as a, I mean, there's a political debate about arms control, of course, but then there's the fact the media, the way the media plays those mass shootings, that 
seem to be. Well, it's, it's like climate change. It's, it's disconnected. It's always a one event that has no connection to anything else, you know? Right. So there's no water in Arizona. Well, isn't that an interesting story? And now Madonna is, you know, I mean, so it, that's part of this disconnectedness, yeah. you know, which, and you spoke earlier about history and uh, there's no context. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have any context, it doesn't matter what you report, you can't understand it. And that, that's what's been completely erased from the media landscape, any context. Mm. I wanted to ask you a bit about your work in prisons. Oh. When did, when did it, how did it start? <clears throat> so and it started, so I'd come back from overseas and lost my job at the New York Times for denouncing the war in Iraq, given a formal written reprimand, told I couldn't speak about it. This is classic. We had another reporter, John Burns, who was cheering on the war in Iraq. They didn't give him a reprimand. So it wasn't... It he wasn't. was also involved in uh, the New York Times dealings with Julian. Was he? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so Burns was cheerleading the war and I was denouncing it. So it wasn't a matter of speaking out about the war. It was just speaking out of the war and saying the wrong thing. So mm. I was finally told I couldn't speak publicly and I left the paper. And I kind of floundered. I wrote my first book, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, which I didn't expect anyone to read. It was kind of about the culture of war and, and it wasn't autobiographical and it wasn't even sequential but it was about the culture of war what it's like and I've covered you know at least a half dozen conflicts in depth and I was teaching at Princeton and I was living in Princeton um, I was teaching at the university and a friend of mine who was the head of the history department of the College of New Jersey was going into the prison and teaching college courses to people who had their high school equivalency, what we call the GED. Now, it didn't have academic validity, and she bought the books, and that's how I started, because of her. And then I just, I loved it. I mean, they, and then in 2013, Rutgers started a college degree program, so, mm -hmm. and I started teaching in that. And uh, these are serious, serious students who have turned their cells into libraries, who never had a chance, who, and, and that space in a prison classroom is really sacred because you're, you're given agency. It's the only time in the day you're given agency. You're treated with respect. Yeah. I mean, really, sacred is the only way to describe it. And, um, and so, you know, I've been teaching since 2010, and now I think I've tried to count, I've about 600 students, and a lot of my students are getting out. I helped my students write a play, which was my book, our class, was about that process. Um, and it was, and your mother's a theater director, your brother's an actor, my wife is an actor. And I, but I, when I started, it was kind of clueless. I, I, want, I was teaching drama, I was teaching August Wilson, all these great playwrights, Baldwin and others, but I realized from the first day they hadn't seen any theater because they don't have money to go see theater. Right. Unlike in the old days in Europe where they used to subsidize. Even when I lived in Zagreb, I could buy a ticket for $10 to go see great opera and they were all state employees. And so whatever you say about communism, you know, they supported the arts and a great education. I mean, you could get through Charles University. And so, um, so I said, okay, well, why don't you just 
try and I wanted them to write in dramatic dialogue so they, because that's how emotions and information, everything is conveyed. And it turns out that one of my students had been, had knew who I was and had recruited the best writers in the prison. So I start reading through this stuff and I'm going, wow. I mean, I had four or five really powerfully written. And so just, I said to my wife, I think I'm going to try and help them write a play. Not that I know anything about writing a play. And then it un just unraveled. I mean, because they don't, in a prison, you don't even tell your cellmate anything about yourself, what are you, mm. because when you're, when you express vulnerability, then the predators come for you. Right. And, um, and guys would get up and they started writing these scenes of their lives. And some of them couldn't read them or they'd stand up and their hands were shaking and they were crying. It was really powerful. And because it, it, it inadvertently and organically became, you know, the, the, their grief, their loss, mm. all of that was expressed in a group of 28. And then eventually, um, when I first asked, I said, who wants, who wants parts? Who wants a part? Only seven people wanted parts of the 28. But as we started writing all 28, so I had to write 28. I was editing it. They were writing it. But I had to write 28 parts. I mean, it was like a Fabian tract, you know. Was, and, uh, and then we had a reading, and uh, I, we couldn't produce it because there was stuff in there that, that would anger the guards. Hmm. And... Um, so I brought in Cornell West and the great theologian James Cohn to hear it. But when we got to the lobby, the warden was there and he said, you're not going to your classroom. And they hauled us into the chapel and there was a phalanx of guards, all white at the back. And then they brought my class in. And of course they had to immediately decide which parts of the play they could read out loud and which they couldn't. Mm. And they all huddled like in a big circle. And I wanted to hear what they were editing out. And I, but I purposely walked all the way to the back of the room because I said, it's theirs. It's their play. Uh, and you can't replicate that power. You know, however, you know, they didn't have, they weren't trained actors or anything, but it all came from here. Uh, and then my best writer, thank God, got out first. I met him at the gate. And, and we worked with a theater, a great director, Jeff Wise in New York, who workshopped it. And we had to reduce those parts back to seven parts, and then it was produced by the theater in Trenton, New Jersey, and, and was sold out every night for a month, and then we had one night for the families, and that was, you know, an amazing experience. So all of these families, some of whom had driven hours to get there, and about four months in the play, I hear people begin to cry, and they just wept mm -hmm. through the whole play. Uh, and so I wrote this book, Our Class, that use that process of writing the play to talk about mass incarceration because every scene in that play happened to someone in that classroom, including stuff that would just seem improbable, like the guy who his first night in Trenton, which is the high security prison in New Jersey, the guard comes, he goes, you know, that was your father's cell. Yeah, stuff like that. You can, yeah. Or the, you know, I said once to one of my, I said, okay, well, we were working on scenes. I said, we need to get a dialogue between the son and the mother. And then a student comes up to me after class and goes, well, what if we're a product of rape? And I said, well, that, that's what you got to write, Timmy. So he gets, uh, he couldn't read it, actually. And it was written into the play. And when we produced the play and he did read it, he immediately went off stage and 
I said, where's Timmy, where's Timmy? And I found him in the corner of the bathroom, just shaking and sobbing. And the dialogue that he wrote, which was from his own experience, was uh, he was a product of rape, and he was with his half-brother in a car, and there was a weapon in the car, and the car was searched by the police, and it was his half-brother's weapon, and he said, it's mine. And what he wrote was the phone call from the county jail to his mother, which said, it doesn't matter, Ma, I was never supposed to be here anyway, and you have the son you love. That's why he went to prison. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it was, I mean, still when I, even though I wrote the book, I pick it up and it kind of rips my heart out. Wow. So I'm really committed and they're amazing guys. They remind me of war correspondents, actually. I don't really like liberals too much. Um, I used to, when I went to divinity school at Harvard, I lived in the inner city in Roxbury and ran a, I used to commute into Cambridge to go to school. I said, that is where I learned to hate liberals. All the people who, you know, talk about empowering people they never met. Um, so now they're getting out, a lot of them, and uh, they're brilliant. I mean, I've got, you know, several graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers, and they're tough, and they're real, uh, fiercely loyal. That, you know, war correspondents are kind of rogues in many ways, but you earn your way into that fraternity by always watching the back of the person you're with. I mean, I can remember being in ambushes and every fiber in my body wanted to run. I mean, you know, it's terrifying, it's scary, but you can't until everyone goes out. Mm. And that kind of, they have that kind of loyalty. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, now they're, I'm, I'm getting back and going to court. I'm, you know, I'm, it, as they get out, you, because it's so hard to get work and, you just get, you know, involved in their lives, and I know their mothers and their kids, and so... So yeah. was this a specific prison with a, a management that thought this was a good idea, or...? No, that's interesting. So it was, it, they, the prison rights advocates uh, organized to pass a law in New Jersey that said that if secondary education was provided, the prisons had to create a space for it. Mm. And so... Rutgers, they raise several million dollars a year, but it's actually an entity within Rutgers, but it's not Rutgers. So at the beginning, the guards treated us really poorly because they, bait, they were baiting us. They wanted, right. they would treat us, I mean, just horrific stuff. Like when, you know, the, the guards bring in the drugs, then there are overdoses, then the, the special investigation division comes in and tries to find out who... So one night I'm sitting there with a bunch of other Rutgers professors and we go into the rotunda at East Jersey State Prison, which, and the rotunda is completely surrounded by bars. And suddenly these guards come to us. Now we're all teachers, up against the bars, up against the bars. We all have to stand on the bars. We're patted down and searched. Then they bring the dogs to sniff us. And then they go, all right, get out. You're not teaching tonight. So that's like classic. And of course, what happens is most professors don't come back. It's very, yeah. That's what they want. Very hard to retain professors. And they can be very... So, but you can't respond because if, if you say one thing, I'm sure you know what I'm talking yeah. about, then they write it up and you don't come back. Yes. And so they, they could be really... It's better now. And I think it's better because we, like in the prison that I just taught in, we have 140 people out of 2,000 in the college degree program. It's really hard to get in. And if you have a lot of charges, i.e. if your disciplinary record is not good, you can't get in. Mm. So I think we had 
for the 140, six or 700 applications, but it means that the behaviors in the prisons are modified because people want to get into the program. That's my guess. Right. So they're not as, and then you've got the class issue because the guards didn't go to college and they're going, why do these people get free? I mean, it's a legitimate question. I mean, so, yeah. and then the other factor you've got is that most of these people, a lot of the guards were in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they've got very bad PTSD hmm. and I'll pull in there and they're all coming in their pickup trucks and totally pumped up probably on steroids. Yeah. And it's a job like cops where you can be paid very well to be a sadist. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, nobody's going to... The vocational ones. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's... For, for people who haven't been in that kind of environment, it's very difficult to understand um, the kind of dynamic that develops very quickly. Because I think maybe the first or second time you go in there and you you kind of... You want to stand your ground on all sm so uh, sorts of small things. That's a bad idea. It's a bad idea, and you and and you notice people who are new, you know, coming into <laughs> yeah. the prison. You're like, just, just, just run with it, you know, because first of all, it's it's a little, it's a little fiefdom, right? It's a it's totalitarian like, system, I yeah, mean, completely. And and they control everything. I mean, literally everything. And on a whim too. Yes. It's a whim. There's no rule. They just feel like it. They do it. Exactly. So you're you're uh, you have to play along. Yeah, you have to make uh, compromises uh, in order to and pick your battles. Because I mean, at, at times I have to. I've tweeted about things that have happened in the prison, but maybe one time out of every six, because right. I have to do that calculation. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, I was just, I was just in Rome. I don't know if you know. I, I saw had the Pope. A, yes, I saw the Pope in a private audience, and I gave. You, you speak Spanish too, right? Yes. You speak Spanish. Right? We spoke Spanish. Except he speaks Argentine Spanish. But it's all right. <laughs> and I, I was thinking, I have to give him. I want to give him a gift, but what, what gift do you give the Pope? And so the, the gift that I ended up giving was, um, two printouts, of the famous. Uh, wedding pictures. Oh, that's nice. Um, because, as you know, I mean, you were meant to be there. <laughs> you were meant to, I meant was to there, be a witness. Just as outside. Yes, you were outside with, the listening to Craig Murray. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, one of the objections they had to having you as a witness was that you were a journalist. I know. Well, well the they didn't let was. your photographer in there. Exactly. So, so the the prison took the pictures. Uh, prison guard, who's the same prison guard that that does the pictures for cell raids. Um, and Julian and I sort of joke that our, our wedding pictures would look like a cell raid, and they kind of do. So we haven't actually been given the digital files. We've been given, both Julian and I each, um, printed out copies of the, of the wedding um, in A4, like porous, not photograph photographic uh -huh. paper. Uh, and that's what I have, right? I just have that one copy. Supposedly, the prison has been is retaining the digital copy. We got uh, Julian's solicitor to write to the prison, and they said yes, they would retain. But that's it. classic prison behavior. I mean, oh, yeah. it's just yeah, they just invent like obstacles that have just for because they like to do it. I guess I don't know. Well, the thing is, they they said um, we weren't allowed to bring the photographer in because it was a security issue. But then they chose a location. The location had to be a room with nothing on the wall, like a blank As opposed wall. to the chapel. As opposed to the chapel. Um, and then, 
so they, they had total control over the only thing in the picture is Julian and me in our wedding clothes. That's it. So anyway, this is apparently this is also a security risk. So when the picture? they sent the picture. <laughs> so when they sent the pictures to me, they also sent what they call a compact, which is just this form. Um, and asked me to sign it. I haven't signed it, but um, saying, uh, your, here are your pictures. Um, you're not allowed to share this on social media and you're not allowed to share it with the press. And so they're censored wedding pictures. Wow. And I got asked because I, I, I wrote a tweet saying that I had given these pictures and that bizarrely the prison hasn't allowed me to share it with, with the press or on social media. And then I, I was reading the comments and they said, well, why don't you do it anyway? And that's, that's, I mean, it's a logical question, but it's also if you, if your loved one, if someone is inside the prison, they're exposed right. to right. all sorts of well, they're exposed, difficulty. They're exposed to retribution and yeah. they're always looking for ways to keep you out. Right. So I have, unfortunately, I mean, you, do you know the old character from the movies in America, Step and Fetch It from the 30s? It, it's this horrible black stereotype, you know, where step and fetch it, you know, he's every black stereotype, you could racist stereotype you could want where he doesn't want to work and he's completely obsequious to white people and awful. But that's what I feel like in the prison. Mm -hmm. And it's not my nature and it's not yours, but you got to swallow it because I've got to get in there for my students. And I know they're looking. Like, I'm not allowed to have any email contact, any phone contact, any written contact with any of my students in the prison. And I don't violate that rule because they monitor it. And I know the first time I would just send an email, that's a hard and fast rule. And they don't like me there. I mean, they've tried twice not to give me credentials. Fortunately, I mean, one of the times I was teaching at the University of Princeton and I got the president to call the commissioner. So, I mean, I, I could play that white privilege power game that got me back in, but they don't like me in there. Yeah. So that's what people don't get. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other thing that people don't get is that when you have someone you love in prison, to a certain extent, your family is incarcerated as well. Yes. I mean, that's hard to describe to people, um, but you know, just the fact your children have to go to a prison, they have to see that, you don't, who, what mother wants their children to see that naked face of the police state? I mean, and then you ask questions and then there's of course the whole, I mean, one of the reasons I'm so fiercely against mass incarceration is what it does to families. Mm. And in the States, they, jack up it's all privatized i don't know if it's like the same here so the phone Actually. rates are really high yes and so you and the only way that a incarcerated parent can communicate with their children is over the phone mm -hmm. and they're gouging them i mean we're talking about the poorest of the poor i mean we're, you know people really struggling and it's 15 dollars for 15 minutes yeah and the people who run this i just did a protest at princeton theological seminary because the owner or the the guy who owns uh, it used to be global Telink and they've said of the prison phones who's worth i don't know 10 billion dollars i'm not making that up i mean he's the chairman of the trustee board of the seminary yeah and so you know again it gets into how corrupt the institute how wedded the institutions are um so there's this and you have to pay in advance i mean it's right. yeah no it's it's so awful and there's so many little things like that 
I'm talking about the people who live outside that become so burdensome and stressful, mm. which you're going through, yeah. that if you're not connected to the prison system, you don't get it. It's not just the person who's locked up. Uh, you, in a way, you've locked up the whole family. Yeah. Well, our kids only ever get an hour and a bit with Julian. And there's something called family, family day, which we've never experienced because Julian is never on the, on the list of favorite prisoners. Oh, you have to be selected for family day? You have day? to be selected for family day. So, and, and family day is, I think, five hours and you can watch a movie or something. I don't know. I've only ever heard. It's like a, <laughs> it's some, uh, I hear it's real. But, uh, but we're never no, But you're still within the walls of the prison. I mean, so yeah. when visiting hours would come, and we actually had a riot in the prison, I thought, because one guy was with his kids, and the guard came and started harassing mm -hmm. and insulting him in front of his children. Right. And, and, he, and he got up, and he said out loud to the other, other prisoners, this guy is disrespecting me in front of my kids. There was a riot. People, everyone started fighting. But what they do in, the, in, the, uh, in, in that prison is that, you know, they stop the visit and you've got to move immediately. Mm, mm. And they put all of the prisoners on one side and right. they put all of the families, including the children, on the other. And then they pull a curtain like this. And then it's strip searched. All the men are strip searched. And that, in and of itself, and that's why, and then they will also harass the families who come to visit. So you can wait for hours. There's no bathroom. There, if you wait, you're often outside in the rain. There's no protection from the rain. Right. Then the guards, so a lot of my students tell their mothers don't come because they are so upset and they're powerless yeah. at seeing their mothers disrespected by the guards that they, I, I mean, that's very common. They say, just don't come, don't. And then if people have long sentences, the first thing they do is they get the paralegals to write out the divorce papers. Mm. I mean, it's, mm. it's just, you know, you know, I say, if you don't walk out of that prison system angry, you don't have a heart. And we will say, what keeps you going? I said, well, how can I walk out of that classroom when I walk out? They don't. Yeah. But it's, and Julian's detention conditions are, probably even worse. I mean, they are worse, I think, than my students. I mean, it's, and then it's, let's be clear. I mean, you know, what you're doing is torturing, solitary confinement. I had a student, he had a cell phone sold to him by a guard. They catch it and they throw him in solitary for a year. I mean, he, he graduated summa cum laude. He's out now. He's working as a community organizer. But if you go back to that year, the, he's never gotten over that trauma. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and we know from just, you know, study six days in solitary confinement will start to really mess your head up. So the, these are systems designed to torture, which is, of course, what they're doing to Julian. But it's not just Julian. I think Julian probably gets it worse than they do. In the supermax prisons, though, it's... I taught a... They won't put the college degree program in the supermax prison in the state of New Jersey because, in the words of the warden, they're all, it's a waste of time because they're all going to die in here anyway. That's a quote. So, so I was just buying the books and going in and teaching a course like I had done before the college program. And I taught, you know, these things like teaching Shakespeare in prison, then all these academics write books about how it changed their lives. Well, I've taught Shakespeare in prison and it's good for them, but it didn't change their life. <laughs>
<laughs> I think they couldn't wait to finish. But I did. I taught Lear, a close read of Lear. Okay. It was a whole course, <laughs> line by line. And I wish I'd taped it because I'd have them do summaries, you know, of like, so yeah, Lear, he's got like his posse and like his two bitches. And, you know, they don't, oh, it was hilarious, you know, it was hilarious. But we got to Gloucester's suicide, and it turns out a third of my class had tried to kill themselves. Mm. A third. And that's that supermax. I mean, there's no rec time. They can't lift weights. They will go four or five days without getting out to the yard. Yeah. There, it is. Yeah, it's it's and the mood in that prison or that classroom is unlike any other. Because I teach mostly in maximum security prisons, supermax. It's unlike any. And of course, Julian's held under these you know, same kind of conditions. I mean, he eats in a cell, right? He doesn't, yes. he doesn't, he eats in his cell. Yeah. And these things become kind of, it's very uh, disturbing how this, I think as you're exposed to it and as time goes by, you see, I saw, saw this in myself. I kind of took a, had this um, moment of, objectivity at one point when uh, when we were getting our uh, what's it called the uh, the bureaucratic step you have to do before getting married uh, you get the registrar to come and he so the registrar came to the prison had to have us both present and so on so this was in a different room to where we usually meet which is this big hall it was a where the legal meetings take place and they're small small rooms uh, with a table and some chairs and I came out of this uh, meeting feeling so fortunate for having spent an hour and a half with Julian in a different space mm -hmm. um, and it's very uh, disturbing how how you kind of assimilate the restrictions and normal was in the visits hall and just being with Julian in this different room was, I felt like I had been really fortunate. Um, well, so prison does. Yeah. It reduces you, well, I mean, look, it's a form of, you're a, it's bondage, it's a form of slavery, really. Yeah. And it reduces you to rejoicing in these, in the, you know, on, in the broader context, insignificant privileges that the master grants you. Yes, yes. Have you have you uh, tried to get into, or have you been in ADX Florence? No, it's yes. really hard to get in. Okay. Uh, so this I, is a prison that Julian will likely be taken to if he's. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I've been in Marion to visit Daniel Hale. And he's in the MCU, which replicates, if Julian's extradited, the conditions he'll be held under. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like when I was visiting with Daniel, so I couldn't, it was behind the glass, behind plexiglass. Mm. Now let's remember, this is a guy who never committed a violent crime in his life, like Julian ever you know and 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 so it was me and him talking and the guards were recording and i could hear 
in the other room because they turned the volume up, I could hear our conversation yeah. being recorded right. that they were playing. Hmm. Uh, and that, of course, is, you know, Baritz is a pretty repugnant figure, but she did recognize the savagery of the American prison system, to her credit. Yes. And it is savage, having been in it. And uh, it's really savage. Yeah. So... Has any documentary crew followed you into the prison? They can't. They won't allow it. You, there's no electronics in the prison. You, yeah. can't, you can't do that. Well, not in Belmarsh either, but then you have some TV programs about yeah. Belmarsh that make Belmarsh look good. Or what my students hate is these shows like Real Prison or whatever it's called where they're all animals, you know? Mm -hmm. So you can get TV, but, you know, they're not going to film two hours of us discussing James Baldwin. That make really good TV. <laughs> and that's what all my experience in prison is. Yeah. And uh, so I love this. I love those students, and they come to my house now, and you know they're just amazing human beings. And I spend a lot of time trying to get them jobs, and mm. which is hard, uh, but they're really remarkable. I mean, to to end up where they have ended up. I mean, very few of us could have gone through what they went through and ended up where they end up. Right. It's they are really remarkable people. Uh, so. Um, yeah, no, they won't, they won't allow it. I mean, they, they, I'm, you know, they, I'm, I'm in there by sufferance because they don't want the publicity, which I would, of course, generate if they threw me out. Right. And I have heard anecdotally that the governor said, just, I don't want to deal with it. So just give them the clearance. Um, but yeah, no, they're, they're amazing human beings. I mean, and you know, August Wilson writes about it. So does Solzhenitsyn, you know, the finest people. I'm sure Julian says that. Some of the finest people yeah. he's met are in prison. And there was that, remember there was in the prison that act of solidarity on the part of the prisoners on Julian's behalf? I can't remember the details. It was... Yes, I mean, Julian, when he was arrested, he spent a few weeks in the general population and then he was taken to the health care wing. Well, Hell wing, Hell what do they wing. call it? Yeah, um, it's a misnomer. And he was there for six months, and this was the hardest period because the prison had the... The reasoning from the prison was that he was in a severe suicide risk. They had found him, that he had hidden a uh, razor in his cell. And he was kept in this health wing um, for, for six months. And you can just imagine in, in a prison like Belmarsh, where you have about 750 prisoners, the health wing is maybe a dozen little, yeah, probably about a dozen prisoners. You have the... Uh, acutely suicidal, the um, the prisoners who are dying, um, and then people who are having some kind of uh, mental health um, episode, and that's who you find there. So, and they're kept in isolation from each other. So when he would be let into the yard, that's who he would find and um, he was extremely 
yes, isolated during that period. And he also couldn't make many phone calls. So it was the prisoners who worked as cleaners hmm. in that section who observed Julian's state and put in a petition to the governor to ask for him to be moved into the general population. And eventually that, that worked. And the terrible period in the health wing, um, it's never, well, it's been bad with COVID and so on. For six months, I couldn't visit him. There were periods where he was, you know, in, in solitary um, with this health reasoning. Um, there was an outbreak in his wing, about 70% of prisoners. This was even, you know, early on in the, in the um, pandemic. But it was never as bad as it was when he was in this health wing. And it was thanks to these prisoners who, that he got moved. Um, and there, there is that kind of thing in the prison. Uh, but it's not, you know, Belmarsh is, is a harsh prison. They keep people isolated a lot of the time. As you said, you eat in your cell. Um, sometimes you have association within the wing, which is an hour where you can uh, move in the corridor and speak to other prisoners. But they prefer it not to be that way because from the perspective of an underfunded prison management, the, the more you have um, prisoners interacting, the more risk you have of some incident. Um, and so the, the incentives are just to keep people inside their cells. And of course, uh, that in itself carries all sorts of consequences. Oh, it makes their job easier. I mean, so, you know, when I was teaching in Trenton, I would post the class and I did this, I don't know, three or four times, and then the prison called and said, oh, we posted your class, nobody wants to take it. And the social worker, at some risk, called and said, they never posted your class. Right, sure. Because they don't want the movement, mm. they don't want to deal with it, It's some, keep them locked up for 23 hours a day, mm. it's easier. Yeah. And, uh, and that's always the push in the prisons because any kind of social interaction or an education program requires more work and they don't yes. want to do it. Yeah. Well, it's all, people are used to seeing these prison, prison break and, you know, these TV programs where everyone's in this mess, you know, like mess, do you call it? Mess or? hall, yeah. Mess hall. Mess. People interacting and for most of the time, it's nothing like that, at least in Belmarsh. It's well, no, in really the, the exception to the rule is that you're right. out of Right, so cell. in a supermax prison, you don't get that. In a maximum security prison, you, you will get a mess and a yard and all that kind of stuff. Right. You have sections of the prison, uh, management control units, or what they call the hole, or just isolation. So you have sections in the prison where people are under those conditions. But yeah, we do. But he's, of course, held in a very high security prison. So the, that's typical for... Yeah. how they operate and it, it really the, the the you know the end is to keep them locked in their cells almost all the time that's how they cope with it yeah and I don't know what does he get 23 hours a day in the cell let's see 
yes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it's 22. Okay. Um, you know, you can leave your cell to collect medication, um, to go to the shower, you know, you, you have to be able to leave at certain times. But they, you know, they knock on the door and they say, do you want to shower? And then, then you come out. It's not like you can open right. the door. And, um, yeah. Well, I, I, I have a question for you. So I asked John, I love the, I loved Ithaca, but I really loved Ithaca because John didn't answer any question they asked him. I thought, I mean, I love John. I think it's great. But every time they'd ask him a question, it was completely elliptical. It was like, <laughs> so great. <laughs> so yes. funny. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. But I was here, you know, the night of your wedding. And I said to John something about, I don't know, it came up because I don't know if John's religious or comes out of a religious tradition, but I do, and I sense he has a kind of... I said something about Julian being an atheist. He goes, well, I don't know, you know. And I, and I, and, and, uh, and I so I wanted to ask you, because I didn't explore it with John, but, uh, and I know Julian likes Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn went into the Gulag and atheist and walked out a Christian. Mm. And I'm just curious, and I know that there's been some support from the Pope mm. and that kind of stuff. I'm just curious about, as somebody who went to seminary, you know, what you've seen in terms of Julian's perspective vis-a-vis -vis faith. Well, I don't think I can put words in his mouth. I can talk a bit about the process, I think, that we've both experienced through this. Um, and I've seen people, you know, react rather viscerally when, when, uh, for example, when I said that there was a, the Catholic chaplain in the prison had blessed our wedding and this kind of thing. And people project a lot of things. Well, okay. I have to, I run this run story because I remember you telling me, and I thought it was great. This for me elevated this Catholic chaplain. <laughs> Was it like you're not allowed to hug, but he kept saying, now you can kiss the bride, <laughs> now you can hold the bride. <laughs> um, I think we had both the registrar and the chaplain um, were, uh, actually everyone in the room, even the guards, oh. were, I think, quite moved and enthused by the whole oh. situation we're facilitating. Um, so, uh, yeah, I heard John make some comment about how prolonged this kiss was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think you can't go through something like this without uh, going through some process of uh, becoming quite spiritual. Um, and I've gone through, I think, a process of um, understanding the importance of community and human connection. Mm. And I think it's something that I'm constantly striving to understand in this kind of trying to make sense of what is happening and how you're supposed to, how you can go forward, you know, when, when you have this complete uh, cruelty being... Um, well, let's call it what it is, it's evil. Well, it's evil, it's evil. And you have to... 
you know, you have to go through a process. You, you have to process it and you have to go through a process to learn how to manage your emotions and your... Um, and understand humanity and, the, and how some things are completely... It's also made me think a lot about, you know, justice and how this... How, and the justice system, which is just like... Uh, something that floats on top of, of reality and then sometimes it activates, sometimes it's denied. But then there's this bigger sense of justice that, that people have a natural sense of. And then there are some people who are, who, um, who are outside of that. <laughs> and what I can say is that, you know, um, inside the prison, the, the structure of the chaplaincy provides a place for humanity, for connection, for, um, you know, in, in this brutal environment. And so in whatever way, um, I don't know how Julian would describe it, but I know that he's found support within that structure. And, um, and so have I. Well, because it's stripped down to an existential battle, and every time you walk into that prison with your kids, mm. it's the forces of life confronting, in a very palpable sense, the forces of death. I certainly f experienced that in war. So palpable that I could feel it. Mm. And these are non-rational, not irrational, but non-rational forces that go into, I mean, I think artists, you come out of an artistic family, deal with it. I think religious thinkers, the best ones, mm. deal with it. Mm. But it, those forces go into making a complete life, and yet we can't measure them. And, and because of where Julian is, and because of where you are, and because of what you bring, which is really life, sustenance, eros, love, mm. and you bring it into a space where everything is conspiring to crush love and compassion and empathy, that is an existential experience that I think, and I see it in my students in the prison, forces them to begin to ask questions mm. that in a protected environment or you know, an environment outside of that starkness you don't ask. Uh, and those are, that's why I love Solzhenitsyn. I taught the Gulag Archipelago in the prison last fall, all three volumes and I'm a Nazi, I would like quiz them to make sure they did the reading. But that's, that is the Gulag Archipelago. It mm -hmm. is about his spiritual journey. Yeah. And like Julian, he went into prison with this notoriety and power. He was a captain in the Red Army. He was a brilliant university graduate. And he talks about wearing his officer's coat for the longest time because he couldn't shed himself of that status. Um, and then the last volume is about rebellion and resistance. So I'm not 
surprised. I mean, that, you know, given, how, you know, working in a prison and knowing what you confront, it, you know, it, it's, it is stripped down to the most basic level of human existence. Mm -hmm. And those of us who fight for life, when we're, when we're in war, when we're in Belmarsh, we see the, the face of death, we do. And you know that there are forces, powerful forces that are trying to kill Julian. Yeah. They're trying to kill him. And, and you're John Ark. I don't know if we can finish on that note. Sure, we can. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. I'm going to cry too. So. <laughs>